Hey everyone, Joel here. Welcome to Not My Forte, a podcast where two friends and musical collaborators take a deep dive into the music that we know and love, and also music that we don't know and might love. This is the first episode of season one, which we're calling Ian Hears the Beatles, which we'll, uh, we'll explain that in a little bit. Before we get started with the main episode, I wanted to say two things. First of all, this week we will be talking about the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me, as well as their singles, From Me to You and She Loves You, and we would encourage you to do the same before or after you listen to us talk about it. Uh, due to copyright laws, we can, of course, only include short snippets of some songs. So we want to ask you up top to go and listen to the music on Apple Music or Spotify or if you own the album or however you listen to music. Second of all, I wanted to say that this first episode is pretty heavy on the background information, which you'll be hearing from me, my voice. This is due to the fact that this is the first episode and we were still figuring out the format of the show, uh, but also just because the story of this first album has a lot to do with what was going on in the lives of the Beatles and in the world in general at the time of the album's release. So future episodes will have much less exposition and more of us just talking about the individual songs and the recording process and stuff that pertains to that exact album or single. So in case you get the sense that this whole show is just going to be me talking about Beatles history, uh, it's not. And there are plenty of great reactions and insights from Ian even in this first one. So sit back and enjoy the first ever episode of Not My Forte, Ian Hears the Beatles. So here we are in episode one of this venture. Adventure. Oh, wow. This is already off to a great start. It is. I'm one half of your duo for this podcast. I'm Joel Russo, and across this little TV table from me is my good friend Ian Zumbach. Hello, hello. And uh, we started this podcast about uh, two minutes ago, and uh, <laughs> it's barely premeditated because last week we were out eating food delicious food for my celebrating my 34th birthday and uh we were talking about the beatles probably because of the get back documentary right and basically ian dropped a bombshell on me which is that he has never really listened to the beatles he really has no frame of reference for the beatles um hasn't really dug into them at all and so then I said, hey, you should come over and some night and I should just, you know, I could go for hours just t- like taking you on the whole journey. And then I think it was my wife Jess's idea. She's like, you should do a podcast. And so yes. uh, Jess gets credit for for this, for a good portion of this. And, and here we are, just a matter of days later. We're jumping right in. This evening. Um, what do you want to say about your, about if I left anything out? I think that that really... <laughs> tells the story. I have absolutely no point of reference for the Beatles. I know some of their singles, some of their songs, but I never listened to a full Beatles album before today. So uh, I'm probably one of very few people Mm. in the world that, that haven't been, but essentially I've basically been living 
what that movie was that they made if like what if the Beatles never existed well that's my life the Beatles <laughs> right. really didn't Might exist well in my not. life right. so I just didn't steal their songs and cover them and right, right. that kind of thing well not that you know of mm. and I think it's also interesting because Ian and I are, are the background of our friendship is that we write music together and record music together and talk about a lot of music together. This is not our first podcast. We had another podcast right. about talking about music in depth. And so um, it's kind of interesting that the Beatles are a huge deal for me and a lot of music that we've made together, I feel like, shares a lot of DNA with the Beatles. But there's a big blank space in Ian's, Ian's head when it comes to the Beatles. So... Uh, that's essentially what this is. It's two friends who have a lot of musical things in common, but one of them is, uh, I should actually maybe say what my history with the Beatles is before we jump into this first album. My dad turned me on to the Beatles when I was probably around 12, 11 or 12. There was a documentary on TV about them, and I think at that point he decided it was time that he, because they were like his favorite band, and so... He, I got that Beatles one album, which a lot of people got around that time. It's a compilation of all their number one hits, right? Um, of which there are like twenty four, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, just from there, from there on, every Christmas birthday, I would get different Beatles albums and a bunch of memorabilia and whatever. And to this, I took a Beatles class in music school, which uh, Berkeley mm-hmm. College, Berkeley okay. College of Music, yeah. and I, I took a whole class. It was called Beatles Harmony, and we, we, we analyzed all their songs as if they were like classical compositions or jazz compositions. Amazing. And so I have a a rich history of the Beatles. I feel like I owe them a ton. I started playing music by, I I had a Beatles songbook and I would learn, I literally learned to play chords on the piano just so I could play those songs. Mm. So shortly after I started listening to the Beatles, my mom would show me basic, basic chords on the piano and then I would just go through the the book. So they're they're like actually uh directly responsible for like my musical development in a lot of different ways. Wow. So we our format for this, as far as we can tell, because we're making it up as we go. We're winging it. But uh our format for this is I'm gonna give Ian each time we get together for this, uh, an album. We might do two albums at once. Okay. Maybe especially one of some of the ones coming up. Um, next, but and as well as any singles that they released during that time. And uh, he's going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to them as well. And then we're going to sit down here it. and talk about them yeah. like this. And the way we're going to do it is, we haven't talked about it at all yet, we're going to start with Ian's take, mm. his first reaction to hearing these things with, with no b- background or context. And then uh, I'm going to respond, defend, admit. Mm. All right. Who knows? Uh, to to his his uh, his <laughs> his visions that he gets when uh, when these when these recordings start to conjure things in his mind. So I this week I asked you to listen to the album. Please please me. Yes. I think the song somewhere in the middle of the love record. me do. Yep. Love me do. Yep. And then. From Me to You, the single. From Me to You, yeah. And yes. She Loves You, she single. Loves you. Okay, yep. great, great. All right, so let's just go in order. What, I mean, what did you listen to first? Sure. How did it make you feel? Well, <laughs> so please, please me, I listened to first because mm-hmm. I figured, you know, let's just get the, the, big, the big part of it and, uh, and, and get into that. So my first initial response when I was listening 
to the first song was I had to fight the urge to feel like <laughs> I was living in the movie Grease, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. Like as I was listening, like the audience, I was thinking like they probably engaged with this music, looked like Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta, you know, at that <laughs> right. time. Yeah. But it, but once I got past that, and I'm not saying, I'm literally not saying that to be like to poke fun. Yeah. I was just thinking like contextually, what was this age that this happened? So I referenced back and, and, and saw that the album was released in 1963. So that was my first take. I actually was like, okay, this is pretty old, you know? Yeah, yeah. 15 years before I was born. Um, my second thought was just singing a lot about love songs, mm -hmm. relationships, and sounded like relationships are just as difficult then as they are now. And the way that they presented the music, um, it seemed as if it was tailored towards maybe more of like a teenage or young adult audience. Yes. You know, there was not a like a depth of like relational stuff. It was more like discovering you like boy likes girl, girl mm -hmm. likes boy, breakup, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it seemed very intentional in the writing that it should be targeted towards that audience. So to that point it felt like, wow, this is this is this is the origin of pretty much anything that like this you attribute Taylor Swift songs originating with this vibe of, we're speaking about relationships, we're talking about teenage relationships yeah. and breakups and stuff like that. Um, the other thing I took away was these guys oozed confidence, even mm. though like they were playing to a young crowd, it was clear that they were the ones that were in control and captivating the attention of the audience. Even though they seemed like really nice guys, they seemed very, very confident. Yeah. Um, to that point, there was a sort of, I was like, man, these guys were like the gangster rappers of 1963 because like, please, please me, it's a pretty risque sort of song to sure. sing in 1963. Yeah. And some of the other things like, like I can't remember exactly all the lyrics, but the one song yeah. that has something like, you know, my, when I kiss you, you're going to feel it in your fingertips or something along those lines. I was yeah. like, man, young teenage girls listening to this were probably losing their minds. Like, yeah, wow, yeah. These, these guys are taking what Elvis did and they're maybe kicking it up a notch. That's here. right. Uh, let me raw, see if there's... Raw some, sexuality. There was raw sexuality. I yeah. mean, very packaged in a black black tie suit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there were some moments in there, like they sang with so much intensity. I was like, wow, these guys are really belting it out. I thought that was cool. There were some songs that confused me that I had to go back and listen to, like Boys, like, like yeah, yeah. which was the one song that I felt like I needed to go back and, and listen to to understand what the message was because it seemed like everything else was so simple, like in terms of like, yeah, yeah. here's the message, this is what you're supposed to get out of the song, okay. and we're going to drive it right up the middle. We're not going to make it complicated. Yeah, We're just going to write really, really catchy hooks, strong melodies, and we're going to get to the point quick, mm -hmm. and we're going to get out of there like before you get tired about the song, basically. Um, and then the only other takeaway that really stuck with me was a song called Taste of Honey, which felt like a very deep cut. And when I listened to it, I was like, wow, I'm listening to the origin of like Blue Oyster Cult or the Moody Blues. You know, I probably <laughs> listened to this song uh -huh. on repeat. Yeah. Or even was curious about whether or not Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence and that 
material came out before that song and it didn't. So I wonder, even though those guys are folk legends, did that song influence their direction at all as a band? So Hmm. I could see a lot of influence and a lot of music even, even originating in that album. So those are my hot takes on Please Please Me. Please Please Me. All right. Um, I think I, I didn't say, I didn't ask you to listen to Love Me Do, I don't think, because that's on the album. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that was the other, that was the only other takeaway. We'll interrupt for a second. Yeah. The singles, I guess the songs that you would know were the best songs. So like, okay, yeah. I Saw Her Standing There, Kicks uh-huh. It Off. It's like, oh, this is clearly yep. such a great song. And then uh, Love Me Do, Twist and Shout. Mm-hmm. Those three songs are the most right. memorable. Yeah, and they're yeah. the ones that are most popular and clearly the best songs. So it's like the yeah. cream really rised to the top in the way that yeah. they selected what was going to be promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to set a trajectory of like, okay, we're we're listening to what the audience responds to, and yeah, and we're going to lean into that early on too. We're, we'll talk about singles. The only reason I'm delineating between like albums and singles is because if you listen to just the albums, you end up missing a lot of songs because they released a lot of singles that weren't on any albums. Interesting. So, so for example, that, like, Twist and Shout, that was a hugely successful radio single for them. Uh, but, first of all, they didn't write it. And second of all, uh, it, was, it wasn't, like, really, it was on the album. You know, it kind of came from people playing the album, probably, and DJs mm-hmm. playing it off of it. Um, so a lot of these songs did get radio play because uh, they were just a massively successful group. Uh, but yeah, they, they they didn't. That's kind of when I'm when I'm talking about you know albums versus singles. Um, great. Okay, so I'll give a little bit of history here. The B, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little bit of a primer. This is the only time I think I'll do this. Okay. At the very beginning, so you and the people following along at home or in their cars or mowing their lawn or whatever can can get an, a, a bit of a context for for who the Beatles were. They were uh, they met very young. I wrote some dates down here. I've done some little bit of research. They formed in May May fourth, Star Wars Day. Oh. Uh, Nineteen fifty seven was their first gig as the Quarry Men. Quarrymen. And I believe that they were, uh, it was a skiffle group. Skiffle being this kind of, it was, especially in Liverpool, I think, at that, that part of the UK at the time, uh, they, a lot of like washboards they would have, they would have and acoustic guitars and a lot of kind of like uh, early rock and roll stuff. Wow. Um, not a lot of drums yet even, not a lot of electric guitars, but like harmonicas, guitars, that kind of thing. I like it was like guitars. Hurdy gurdy, yeah, yeah, Kinda. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay, it was, pr- and it was, it was definitely young person music. It was folk, it was very folk, folk and blues influenced, uh, and then you know the the rock and roll kind of inspired this out of a lot of young poor UK kids. Hmm. And so, just as a question, yeah, the quarry men, like, did that have any, any significance in the culture that they lived in? Like, were were there like people working in quarries? And yeah, was, like, I believe it was named after their, like, primary school. Okay, uh, at least John and George's, or maybe just John's. So they were childhood friends. Yes. Yeah, so it started off John and George. Uh, George is the youngest of them. I believe John is the second oldest, and that's you know, I think Ringo was the oldest. George is the youngest, and I think there's maybe four years, three or four years in between them. Okay. Um, but George is the youngest. 
uh, him this first iteration, the Quarrymen, in 1957. So that's pretty pretty early. They were talking. Yeah, my dad six was years, two years old. Yeah, wow. And it was a long time before this this album that we that we listened to. But it was it was John and George, and then some other guys were in this group. And John was clearly the the leader. He was the one who was writing his own songs and was was singing. He was you know kind of the talent. It was just John and George um, on October 18th of that year, so just a few months later. That's when Paul McCartney played his first gig with them. They were friends. Uh, him and him, I believe. Uh, I believe uh, George brought kind of Paul into the fold okay. and introduced him to John. Um, so it says October. The date I found was October 18th, 1957, was Paul's first gig with them, which is not Star Wars Day. No, not even okay. close. Yeah, it's close to Halloween, but. Mm. But not even. So then they they changed their name to Johnny and the Moon Dogs. <laughs> That's pretty great. Sounds like a professional wrestling team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Yeah. And so again, this is all over the next couple years. So I, I don't have dates for any of these. But Johnny and the Moon Dogs, and then they turn into the. Uh, they had a guy named Stuart Sutcliffe in the band who was. Uh, I believe played bass and guitar at okay. times. Paul at this point wasn't really the bass player yet. He was playing more piano and guitar. He it was Stewart's idea to call them the Beatles, B E E T L E S, so okay. like the Bug. And I think it's because he wanted because Bill Haley's band was called the Crickets. I think. Who who's Bill Haley? Bill Bill Haley. Um, no, sorry, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. It was Buddy okay. Holly. Okay. Bill Haley was um, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, rock. Bring it. Yeah, <laughs> you know it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. Bill Haley, same time period, of course, but Buddy Holly's, his band's name was the Crickets, and I think they was the Crickets, the Beatles. Gotcha. Obviously. And then it turned into the Silver Beatles for a while, while they were, uh, this I think was extended into their like Hamburg, Germany years, uh, in 1960 to 1961, and then uh, eventually, uh, I think in 1961, got turned into the Beatles, B E A T. It was as that in, because like a management company, like a manager came in and was like, "Hey, I believe your, so." Them. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I let me actually, I can find that really easily. Um, the, it was uh, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but the, uh, like the beat, you know, the beat right. rolls, like the like music has a beat. Do you get it? I get it. <laughs> and I think it was their manager, Brian Epstein. Out of curiosity, did Epstein continue as the manager through their whole career? He did until he died. Okay. He died uh, in late 1968 or, or maybe mid-1968, uh, and that was a huge deal for the band. Okay. Uh, he was kind of like their, their best friend. Hmm. He was a little bit older than they were, and he was really a huge part of their success. I don't mean to jump ahead too much, but yeah. when he died, is that when the relational issues started mm-hmm. to increase more? And you can definitely see that they didn't have as much of a rudder mm-hmm. or like a, a you know a reason for making yeah. certain decisions. And sure. so he got into the mix um, early on here, um, around the time of this first album or before this first album. Um, but yeah, Brian Epstein, he was he goes down as one of the, like the you know most influential and important managers, of course, um, because of this uh, or you know band managers of all time. But yeah, he um, I think it was. Him, uh, it was either he's definitely the one who got them to like dress to cut their hair a certain way to wear the the to have to wear the suits and all that stuff. He, he was kind of the mastermind of of like marketing and and I think just like, he was kind of you know he was a fifth 
member almost. Wow. Anyway, and just as a footnote, he's yeah. n- not a relative of Jeffrey Epstein, right? As far as we know. Okay. As far as we know. Just want to make sure. We don't I want mean, to be a controversial podcast. We're talking about not at all. the Beatles. This is just about the Beatles. That's right. And if we get into the moon landing and JFK, you know, that those did happen during the Beatles era. Era. Okay. But we'll see. So the Beatles landed on the moon? Is that what you're saying, Joel? Well, there is some controversy that comes up later, some conspiracy theories that concern the Beatles, but that, we're not going to get there till about, like, 1965, 1966. Okay, okay. Uh, so, uh, so at this point, it was, uh, I believe the band was, uh, it was Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Stuart Sutcliffe, and a guy named Pete Best on the drums. I've heard of Pete. Mm-hmm. But go go on. I so Pete's, I a, Pete's the drummer. They I basically say this just to, to tell you kind of just the lead up to the first this first album, which is that um, from September 1960 to I would say over the next year and a half to two years, the Beatles began this residency at this club or I think a couple different clubs in Hamburg, Germany, and they would play. Huge, like eight-hour sets, like Whoa. every day for like for m- months at a time, like thirty days at a time or something. That's crazy. And this is the one of the most kind of famous examples of the ten thousand hours, kind of the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours rule. He he in his book The Tipping Point he talks about uh, he talks about the Beatles being in Hamburg and how that's really this kind of galvanizing uh, period for them. And they went through it, I believe, for the most part, without Ringo, if not completely without Ringo. Mm-hmm. Ringo comes in after the Hamburg residency ends. They kick Pete Best out for a number of reasons. Ringo was in this other successful group called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Okay. And he um, he was. They were very successful in the area as well. They were kind of local favorites. And he, yeah, like they they basically kind of sniped Ringo. From this other band. <laughs> wow. It was right about this time. So Please Please Me LP was recorded in uh, February of 1963. And Ringo had basically kind of just joined the band at that point. Can we back up for just a second? Yeah. yeah. So you said Pete Best was thrown out for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Because it's curious. I mean, I'm sure one reason is he just wasn't, he wasn't doing it well, you know, playing well or to what they needed him to. But are there, are yeah. there details? I mean... It, it is a bit of a controversial topic uh, for for Beatles, you know, for history fans, because I think Pete Best, he still, like, goes on tour talking about this stuff. Oh, wow. Um, so he's made a career out of, of being the, of being the, the guy that got drummer. kicked out of the Beatles. Yes. <laughs> and so wow. He, so, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, it, it wasn't, he, it wasn't, um, he didn't love being kicked out or whatever, but I think he uh, he just didn't he didn't fit necessarily. I think he didn't want to get his hair cut in the same way. Okay, as them, just didn't, he didn't want to fit. Play and I think it could have been. It may have been a bit of a I don't know, like not a great. Like here's a picture of him with them. Yeah, his refusal. The the caption of this picture is Pete Best refusal to adopt a beetle haircut estranged him from the other three. Oh yeah. He looks like an outcast for sure. <laughs> and so I think that the biggest thing yeah, at this point, so it's 1962, Brian Epstein's already involved. Um, yeah, at this point, I think it was just a gradual kind of, he wasn't fitting. And I think Epstein knew 
that um, at this point they started auditioning, they started thinking about recording, and he knew that he, they basically kind of needed star power in this band. And to that point, and and that was no pun intended on that, right? No star intended, or they oh. needed star power. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that was definitely no star. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Uh, Correct. Yeah, no pun intended. Ringo, they needed Ringo star power. They did. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was smart, though, of Epstein to, like, be able to identify. I think mm-hmm. that if this guy's not willing to get his hair cut, right. this actually, this is, this is going to be a bigger problem because if he's going to already throw the gauntlet down about hair, yeah. what else is uh-huh. this guy going to be problematic about when we get into the studio or creative decisions or going on tour or whatever those things? Yeah. I agree with their their decision wholeheartedly, just for the record. I mean, now looking back, come yeah. on, yeah. But so, in, so now we begin we get begin to kind of enter the timeline for the, re, the, recording, the recording that we're talking about today. Right. And there's an interesting footnote to this that's very the, part of the reason that I'm sharing all this, which is that the first official recording that the Beatles made was the song "Love Me Do," which is an original, and Ringo does not play drums on it. Oh, wow. Ringo is on tambourine. The guy, his session drummer named Andy White played drums on it. Now, there's barely, there's not a lot of drums on this song. Right. And they, I guess they tried a couple versions with Ringo. And at this point, I think there was just a standard of using studio drummers often. Sure. Uh, so I, from what I can tell, a lot of groups would do this where they would hire a studio drummer even if the band already had one. But, um, yeah, so the first song, Love Me Do, it's recorded September 11th. Okay, we said we weren't going to talk about conspiracies, but... Yeah. I'm just, we're just going to leave that one. <laughs> recorded September 11th, 1962. Uh, yeah, so Ringo plays the tambourine on it, but this guy, Andy White, played drums, and that was the last time anything like that happened. It was recorded beginning of September. It was released in on October 5th, so it was about a month less than a month turnaround to release it. It peaked at number 17 in the UK. And that was their first single. I, I'm interested, I'm like, do you have any other recollections from that song? Because I think that's kind of a, when you, th- I mean, when you think of old, you know, when I think about the journey that we're going on with the Beatles, that song to me kind of like says, all right, we're clearly at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, actually, what did stick out to me that there wasn't many drums actually mm. on it. Actually, that was like, because one of the things I did take away and didn't talk about before was that I've I had heard a lot when I was a kid how bad a drummer Ringo Starr was. Right. Really? Yeah. yeah. And I think part of that was because of the type of m- musical circles that I was running in were very right. Well, same. Get, you know, the, it was Led Zeppelin basically was right, the first yeah. introduction to music. I mean, I remember right. Zeppelin too. Whole lot of love was like literally the first thing I could ever remember hearing. Yeah on my way to karate class, you know, we made <laughs> oh, yeah. it all the way to Lemon Song. And even at eight years old, I was like, this is a questionable decision <laughs> by my dad to let me listen to this song right now. Oh. But it was always Bonham, yeah, I wonder, bottom, bottom this, bottom that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, but I thought when I listened to it, I was like, Ringo was great. Like, he, yeah. he's a great drummer. And he so is. when I heard that with the tambourines, my thought was, oh, they're already doing something creative with the percussion on this song and like not doing full drums they're just doing something right. kind of cool and love me do is a good example of that skiffle style that they started okay. with that that is how a lot of those songs sound you'll know there's a really prominent harmonica 
Oh yeah, the, and a couple sure. of these songs actually. John, yeah. that's John Lennon. He would do. He had this harmonica thing down, and so he, yeah, "Love Me Do" was like the. Right. He would. That was him, and that that was like a prominent part of their. Yeah, of their of their. That's like a, a big sound kind of in there. There's a couple of harmonica parts in those. Yeah. Song like all the songs on an album. Right? Please please me too. Yeah, yeah sure. So which is their second single. Okay. It's a perfect segue. Which is a bold single, really. I mean, yeah. this is like oozes sexuality, really. Sure, yeah. Last night I said these words to my girl. I love this song. Yeah. Um, I think this is such a clear, like, and ex- I, when I think back to the early Beatles, uh, which I, I didn't get into, like, the later Beatles, like I think a lot of people do first, the people that grew up in, like, my era. Sure. I got into, like, the early Beatles at the same time, really. And so... Um, I loved all this stuff first. Wow. You know, like the early stuff was almost kind of my favorite. I liked it even more, I think, when I first started listening to them. But this song, this song kind of kicks. Like it's Yeah, it's got a drive to it. It it's got some interesting chord changes, good harmonies. Um, it's got good song structure. Like it it's and like you said, they're really singing, like they they have a lot of like vocal power mm-hmm. in the group. So that's their second single. That one was recorded uh, November 26th of 1962. So just like a month and a half after the other one was released. And then it was released January 11th, 1963 in the UK. And this is their first US single. There's kind of a fuzzy date here. No one's no one's sure, but um, it seems February 7th seems to be about the time that it was released in the US. And that was their first US single was Please Please Me. Just before Valentine's Day, and let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. It worked. Nine months later, a lot of, there a lot lot of babies, babies were born. A lot of babies. Yeah, you, go, you hear about the baby boom? This was the, the, the Please Please Me parabola. <laughs> um, Did we just create that? Like, or is this like a literal? No, I... You, okay. No, yeah. Right. I, th- I mean, I think we're being No, we're clever. just riffing. Yeah, okay. I'm, I mean, I'm sure the Beatles were responsible for quite a few babies being born. Yeah, I bet if, you're right. If that, in that way, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, so at this point, they'd made some like demos. They had done some like I was listening to them earlier. They they did some like audition tapes, but it was really pretty rough that they made to try to that Epstein got them to to make for some different labels that he's trying to sh- shop them to. Okay. And then, please, please me goes number one, I believe in, in the U S. in the U K. Oh, UK. Okay. Then now it's like all hands on deck, and this is where it really starts to pick up. And so uh, Brian Epstein is like in full, like li- strike while the iron's hot mode, and so he starts getting these tours set up. They fin- they're finishing just, out just overseas or getting- uh, in the UK at this point. Okay, before at least around this time until she loves you. That's about we'll get there, but that's that's about when they start heading over the states. He starts booking tours. He starts. Getting them bigger gigs. Uh, at this point, they they have this residency at the Cavern Club, which is this very famous venue in Liverpool. Okay, where they um, they played like every day. They played like there at lunch and at dinner on a, a lot of days um, during Can you imagine? like nineteen sixty two, nineteen sixty three. Just thinking about that, like the Beatles were a yeah. resident band. Yeah, so wild. I like a couple places. Wow, this this Hamburg place and then the Cavern Club. Yeah, and you you can find a lot of. Um, a lot of photos of them at the cavern. It's like a, they were, you know, they were like the home hometown 
kind of heroes there. That's cool. Yeah. And so they were like, and you can, I guess you can, I think you can still go there. It's just very obviously hmm. from the name, it's this very kind of dimly lit cavern looking place. Um, but that's where they were when they got Ringo. Hmm. And he started playing gigs with them. Part of this push that Brian Epstein has, his feeling, is that they got to record a full-length album. They need to put an LP out. So they go in on February 11th, 1963, and they record the remaining 10 songs of this album in 585 minutes on that one day. Wow. So everything other than those two songs, those two singles, they recorded that day. And they basically just took their live set, kind of everything that they really thought was working uh, for, for them in the cavern at the time, and they recorded it. So, and this is where your, your views, your hot takes get interesting because those so- a few of the songs that you mentioned were not their songs. Huh. So I'll tell you the, um, the, song, the covers and the originals. So the covers are the song Anna, which I think parenthetical go to him. Oh yeah, like he loves you more. Mm-hmm. Get lost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chains, which uh, my baby's got me locked up. The first right. song to feature George Harrison on lead vocals. Yeah. Boys, which is also a cover with Ringo on vocals. The right. first Ringo song. Uh, baby, it's you. A taste of honey, and twist and shout. Uh, Taste of Honey was uh, released by Herb Alpert. 19, I guess it came after this. So 1965, it says. Okay. The internet says. But yeah, it's a, it's a pop standard. And I think it was well-known, maybe even more well-known than the Beatles version, was like uh, this instrumental version of it. Okay. And a lot of people from that time knew it as this instrumental thing, not as the, the lyrical version that the Beatles played. I'm just amazed that... Now it, it gives my listening experience such a different take that those songs were recorded in one session, just letting it rip. It's so tight. Yeah. It's so tight. It's so good. And there's nothing there to correct anything or give some sort of production fudge that's going to make it sound better. It's just them. That's astounding, actually. You're right. It's pretty much all in one room. It took them 10 hours, but like, yeah, they, they, you know, they had these songs down. There were a couple, a couple overdubs. George Martin recorded a couple overdubs on February 20th. Uh, so just like uh, nine days later. And George Martin was the producer? Yes. Where, Sorry, I should have said that. And where was this recorded? This was recorded at EMI Studios, which later became Abbey Road. Oh, cool. So it's it's from the, from the start. Very beginning. They started at this place, um, which would, yeah, later, of course, become the most famous studio in the world. Right. Uh, yeah, George Martin, he's he got hooked up with them as their producer, and he was like, you know, he's... he's um, at the time, the producer, I think, had an even more hands-on role than producers do now. Um, and But but it, what's interesting to me is, as a producer, I, he's still kind of, he's still doing the things that I end up doing, that a lot of people end up doing when they're producing music, which is he went back and he put some, like, glockenspiel <laughs> on some things, and he okay. put a couple little touches like that to some of these songs. Yeah. Know? He didn't, you know, he didn't do anything drastic, but he was like, oh, I think we could put this on it. It needs a little color over here. Yeah, and yeah. they only, I mean, they're probably working with four tracks at this point, so he could only logistically kind of 
put one thing right <laughs> on it really <laughs> wow the innovations in recording yeah be so cool with the limitations that they had to be able to do neat things to add color yeah. and memorable moments that like maybe you wouldn't even like notice yeah as a listener but gives it that special something to lift a part or, or make it more interesting absolutely That's so cool it's it's really something to think about the difference in process uh, that they were going through here and then that we go through now e- even their later albums but but especially the these first ones and just how we take it for granted that we can come in here and sit down and and take it easy and and have program something and have it play back to us and be able to rely on our technology to to fill in all the gaps whereas for them it was no we have to all play this at the same time we all have to be on the same page and that consistency that they had through performing at these these places night after night after night after night obviously was huge for them and it led to them being able to do this because not every band could do this not every band could make recordings this tight a lot of live music was pretty loose yeah back then and it even sounds like i mean you could probably put a metronome up to it and i I don't yeah obviously it's going to fluctuate some but Mm -hmm. it seemed like the timekeeping was very very good yeah no headphones for a lot of these is that right? So they're just they're using like wedges, or they're u- you're just using monitor speakers in the tracking room. That's one of the things in that Get Back documentary, which sparked our conversation, which led to this podcast. That's kind of crazy. Even on Let It Be, their second to last album they recorded, no headphones the whole time. Just playing. <laughs> they're just playing. They just they had to position those monitors in a way that didn't bleed into the mics too too much. There would there would be some bleed, you know, so yeah, maybe. that's and that's maybe like a maybe a little bit of me, like interjecting an idea into this thing a little bit because I have a yeah. personal bent towards this. But mm. I hope maybe like there's a listener that that is like a producer and musician that hearing this <laughs> might allow them to have permission to give themselves to try things differently and yeah. not be boxed in by whatever's happening right right here and now. Absolutely. You know, which, don't get me wrong, what's happening right here and now is still pretty great because I think yeah. I'd rather have that, maybe some of the uh, comfort of... of Modern that, day. Yeah, modern yeah. day technology. But man, it's amazing what these guys did. Yeah, and I think to your point, when you were talking earlier about kind of hearing what they're singing about and the simplicity of their music, I think culturally it's really important to know the context, especially with this first episode or this first look into this, what they were dealing with mm. um, as far as like what was happening. Uh, L- Little Richard was huge for them. Uh, Motown Records, huge for them. They'll, they're they're going to do a lot of like Motown and R&B, American R&B covers over the next couple albums. They really drew on that music in a big way. And this yeah, the, the, just like nowadays, there are kind of, you'll notice that a lot of music on the radio tends to fall into certain categories, of course, at the, uh, at, lyrically speaking. Sure. When you listen to this, it is all, it's all love songs. It's all about this stuff. It's all about, you know, having a girl and knowing that you're coming home to her. Right. And, or wanting sh- her to be your baby or she's someone else's baby, you know. Right. Obviously, there's still songs like that. Jesse's Girl happened 20-odd years after this, right? Right, right. (laughs) 
but that's those are the themes that yeah those I mean that's pretty much just what songs were about back then and if you I mean if you go back 200 300 years it was all church songs or at least the songs that we have written down were all were all part of religious services Hmm. so I think at different times It'll be interesting in a hundred years for people to look back at this time and say, "Hey, why was everyone singing about? I don't know, I don't know. Instagram. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what. Whatever would the be themes the, are. What would be the theme? Depression, that, maybe. Maybe. You know, it could be mental health. It sure. could be. There's a lot of like things that people are you know sing about that we don't. It's in the zeitgeist, so it seems like it's oh, that's important to us right now. But later, they may look back and be like, "Why are they singing about this particular thing?" And I think. Now, us looking back sixty years to the, to this time, it feels the same way. We're like, oh, that's interesting. This is like they're, they're, every song is about my baby, or right, or I want to be your man, or that kind of thing. Could you imagine if there was like nuclear fallout? Right. Let's just think for a second. Right. And there's like only a little bit of music that's preserved, and somebody survives this thing, and they look back and they're like, I wonder what our ancestors yeah. were listening <laughs> to, and they open up. Ba with the Bob by Kid Rock or something, <laughs> and that's that's what, yeah, that's what's applied to our generation as being. We want to think the about theme. what's in that capsule, <laughs> right? Yeah, we want to. Yeah, is it going to be? Uh, yeah, is it going to be Limp Biscuit, right? Or is it going to be Radiohead? Mm. Only you, listeners, can decide how we are remembered. It's it's on your shoulders. It's on all of our shoulders. It's true. Gotta, <laughs> gotta carry this one, man. Um, a couple notes here. The Abbey Road session uh, for Please Please Me cost about 400 pounds sterling in 1963, uh, which is about $12,000 today. Wow. So that day. It's pretty expensive. It is pretty expensive. It was, and that I think that's one of the things that, j- it, that shows how much it's changed yeah. to now or like and um, these guys didn't have a record deal at that point right they were putting they, they put did up this well money. it looked differently it looked differently so like emi studios they i think they technically kind of had a record deal with emi but having a record deal meant access to george martin as the producer that's kind I of see. what that meant gotcha. and so um it looked a little different than it does now but Yes, it, they weren't fronting that money. Basically, correct. It was all. It was basically that that they were going to have to pay that back to EMI. Uh, and that was all. Again, Brian Epstein was the one who who facilitated, facilitated that. that. Who who owns the masters of these albums at this point? Because I think they've changed hands a few. Did Michael they Jackson have. own? Beatles he did masters? for a point. Yeah, for for a good amount of time. Um, yeah, I don't know who owns them. I know that Paul bought back a certain amount of them. Yoko Ono. At different times, has has owned some of them. Um, I don't know. We Jeff, should maybe Jeff we'll, Bezos. Maybe we'll say that. <laughs> we'll say we'll we'll revisit that. Maybe on a write that down to to see what that answer is for a later uh, a later episode. Hold me tight is another song uh, that was recorded, I believe, on this day, but it would appear on the next album. Okay. So you will will that's a decent song or song that I remember well. Um, that I believe comes back on with the Beatles, I think. It's, I get Which confused. is the second album, right? Yes. And um, again, there's UK releases, there's US releases. So some of these names, they're a little fuzzy a little where I'm like... I think I read that they had like 20-something international releases, but that translated to like 13 
U.S. releases. Okay. Something yeah, along those lines. that sounds about right. It, it's, there's just so many different, and there's also reissues. And, and live albums too, right? I think, I'm not sure if those live albums were. No, there's not a lot of well-known li- live Oh no. Albums, no. Okay. So yeah, those are the covers. All the the originals, these are all Lennon-McCartney songs. So moving forward, John Lennon and Paul McCartney shared all their songwriting credits. So even if only one of them wrote the song, it was a Lennon and McCartney song. Interesting. Um, What was that? Uh, How did that? They just like a gentleman's agreement? Like we're just going to do that? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I've done done that with bands too. We'll be in a band and, and anything that one of us writes on, we all four of us split that songwriting credit, and it's basically a way of us. We're all working towards the same equity in what whatever we're building. So hmm. I think they were best friends at this point, and they decided they wanted to to do that. So throughout the years, you'll see Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney, and then there'll be Harrison and those one or two that say Starkey, which is Ringo Starr. Early on, I think John, a lot of these songs were mostly John, and then later on, it was mostly Paul. In the la- over the last couple albums, as you'll see, that there's that that trend, but they all they share. Did that cause dissension within the group as they became more successful? Uh, I don't know if that did. No, no. I'm sure that there's that narrative has been put out there, but I mean, if anything, it would be that George didn't always get a lot of cuts, and he also wasn't as good of a songwriter at this point. So there's probably that dynamic going on where they were getting the songwriting credits and probably making a lot more money from these songs mm-hmm. as far as royalties is, than he was. He was also the youngest, though, and I th- seemed like a pretty chill guy at the time. Side note, I think if I looked at Spotify's most popular song of all their mm. of all their catalog, I think Here Comes the Sun is actually their most popular, which there is a go. George song, right? It is a George song. Hmm. So It all worked out. He has the last laugh. Yep. <laughs> I mean, he's dead, but... So technically, Ringo and Paul had the last, last laugh. But when it comes to publishing, yeah. it's, it's George's. The uh, estate of George Harrison is, has the last laugh. That's right. The, so all the Lennon-McCartney originals on this album are, I saw her standing there, Misery, Ask Me Why, Please Please Me, Love Me Do, P.S. I Love You, Do You Want to Know a Secret, There's a Place. Of these songs, think, I saw her standing there, obviously a banger. Mm-hmm. Please Please Me, obviously a killer track. Uh, Love Me Do, more historical for me, you know, Mm. than anything. As far as listening to it, Do You Want to Know a Secret? I've always kind of loved that song. It's kind of a a softer one, but has some really great kind of melodies and harmonies and chord progressions. And then There's a Place I really love. I think that's one of my favorites off of this. That one just has some really interesting, like, song structure, Mm -hmm. uh, where it starts off with this kind of... Just a cappella. There is a place. And then it kind of stops and starts. It's please, please me. And do you want to know a secret? There's a place. Those are the songs that I see show, show, those are showing us where we're going. Gotcha. Where they're thinking outside the box. They're not just doing the rock and roll thing. They're not just doing the R&B thing. They're not just doing the folk thing. They're doing something that combines all, all of those elements into something that's like, really creative and, and I different. I think There's a Place is bookended between Taste of Honey and mm. uh, Twist and Shout, I think, because I remember as I was listening, I was like, oh, this is an interesting song. Am I, am I right in that? Yeah, Taste of Honey and All right. Twist and Shout. Okay. Let's listen to that one right now. All right. Harmonica again. Yep. Great B section here. 
Oh yeah. Modulation. I love the bass sound on this recording. Yeah. Super tight. The other thing about that song, I think as I was listening to it, which was not necessarily a hot take, but it, it is the first time I noticed on the recording when like people will impersonate the oh, yeah. language of the Beatles, you know, th that this song for whatever reason, like I could hear the nuances in their inflections and their yeah. voices and stuff. The Liverpool that, accent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was for really sure. pronounced. Yeah, I, so I think, yeah, there's a place, I think that, you know, that's kind of chess when a lot of these songs are checkers, hmm. and it's kind of on, it's operating on some different levels, and I think that that, yeah, for me, that really sig kind of signals the, the future of their, of their songwriting, where they're not, they're not okay, they're not satisfied with just writing songs like Boys, which is this just rock and roll number. That Ringo's singing, which is great. I think it's a great performance. Yeah. Um, and his, his voice, and then not to mention Twist and Shout, and which, of course, as you can tell on that recording, well, it's, a, it's a very famous recording for the reason that, I mean, it was a big hit, but also, like, John Lennon's voice was shot. They recorded that last because, right. and you could tell, his voice is just, like, shredded. Shredded. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just screaming. Yeah. Uh, but, like, those... Those are great songs, and that's where they're coming from. But already, even on this first album, we're seeing where they're headed. And it's something like that. It's something that has modulations and interesting, you know, B, B sections that have a lot of contrast to the A section. Yeah, I mean, amazing harmonies. Another thing, this thing in this song that is, becomes obvious too is that this band doesn't really have a lead singer. Right. Um, they're going like the bare naked ladies model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How great is it to uh, ascribe the Beatles model to the bare, the bare naked, naked ladies? <laughs> ladies right. uh, it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Exactly. In this case, it's probably the chicken. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> I'll let people interpret that and say, well, but they, in that song, there, it's Paul and John singing the whole time. And Paul singing the high part, John singing the low part. They're really different voices. Mm. Probably, again, because John's voice was getting shot that day. Again, it was all in one day. But you, it's not lacking because that doesn't have, you know, it doesn't lack definition. I think it really comes across as a great song that's sung by two people the whole time. It's not like one person sings a verse and one person sings a chorus or anything. Right. Man, well, to that point, I'm excited about this journey and where it's going because I think it's... As a listener, it's interesting hmm. to listen to, yeah, and also to have this context that's making me appreciate it a lot more, yeah. And hopefully, listeners that are in my ignorant state of Beatles history and music, that maybe they're experiencing the same thing too as they're listening along. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, for me, I know obviously this is very interesting to me, and I could just talk about it for hours. So I'm hoping that you you're coming along. And that you uh, you find it at least a fraction. I do. <laughs> as interesting as I am. I do. Um, I definitely do. So next we're going to go to, we'll talk about From Me to You, which was released on April 11th in the UK of 1963. Mm -hmm. At this point, we're going to be talking, again, trying to provide a lot of historical context. We can touch on kind of the things that are going on, but just 
at this point, assume that it's Beatlemania from from the next single, especially "She Loves You," mm-hmm. and including this one, to that they are now entering into this kind of overnight sensation global thing, right. yeah, which is 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 hasn't stopped basically. Was there a particular <laughs> like performance or like? Just something that really yeah. caught the caught the audience's attention. We're like, this is Beatlemania now. The big, the biggest cultural touchstone is they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, I believe. Okay, in New York City, that was the big moment. My dad remembers that. He's uh, he has a story about being in a bowling alley, and he remembers everything stopped and everyone just like went over to the TV and watched. Wow, and that's kind of I think a lot of people's experience that. Was it was like the moon landing? It was like JFK's assassination. It was this thing that everyone remembered that like they saw them and it was just this wildly different thing. And that was the Beatlemania was already rising, but that was the point where I think it really that's when everyone can point to and be like, oh, that I remember that. In that professional it. wrestling terms, that's when they got put over. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> yes. All right, let's listen to From Me to You. Okay. Harmonica again. Yep. I feel like their vocals even tightened up on this in comparison to the last recording. A lot of unison singing on this one. Yeah. Two of them singing at the same time. Which is very distinctive of their early style, right? Yeah. Okay. The harmonies are very creative here, too, right? The, The way that the harmonies are arranged are really like, are just different. It's not just your usual stacked harmonies. Mm. I really liked how they landed on that note, yeah. not, not back on the one. Yeah, on the minor. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, this, I mean, this is, this is a total pop song, right? Right. And, and this also uh, includes like one of their early, if you ever again one of these things, if you ever see someone doing a Beatle impression, and keep you satisfied, ooh, and yeah. they would do the ooh, and they would like shake their heads and they would <laughs> sing into one mic, right? And um, and you just see like the the girls screaming, yes, and crying, and right? then yeah. yes. Okay. So like when you when we w- we'll watch that like Ed Sullivan thing, like you'll see that you know that's the that's one of their like signature moments, and so that's one of those you can already hear it in the music when they go ooh, that's like a that's like a early Beatles. You know, classic yeah. kind of hallmark. There's nothing lyrically that it's profound, saying. Profound, you know. but I mean, it knows what it is. I think that's really interesting about <laughs> them is that they know, like, it knows what it is, even though they're doing cover songs and this is an original. Yeah. It still feels like it knows what it is and it doesn't need to step outside of it. Mm-hmm. It just accepts this is what, this is our sound, this is what we do. Yeah. And uh, it leans into it. Very yeah. confidently. I think so. All right. We're going to listen to She Loves You next. Okay. And Does she, though? Well, we'll see. All right. Time will tell. All right. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. You know you should be glad. Hey, you know what's interesting about that one? We were talking about like how it seems like all roads lead back to the Beatles, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that particular song, it feels like, wow, this this sounds like where a lot of like early punk and hardcore 
derived a sound from, like the energy of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like this, like kind of like, it's like not completely melodic. It's like a right. lot of energy, repetition. And even when Ringo's going to the toms for the choruses and he's playing like these cool, like kind of like tom thing and it's driving yeah. the energy forward, it feels very punk rock to me. Yeah, that kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Right. This like offbeat thing he's yeah. doing, yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Man, I, he, I, I, to me, it sounds like he probably was tired after he played that song because, I mean, <laughs> a lot of energy on that one. I mean, when I'm listen, I mean, when I listen to that song, I'm like, now, now they're cooking. Now, I mean, that's, you can't listen, I think even as a modern listener, you can't listen to that. And obviously the recording quality is not where it is now. They, they weren't able to like make it sound pristine or as nice as we can now. But I mean, there's so much energy. There's so much interesting stuff going on. Mm. And even the story of that song that's presented it's not just a love song it's an interesting story it's not just saying i love you or it's saying she loves you it's a different angle sure uh and it's still a love song but it's a massive hit that had kind of an interesting curveball to it at a time where they they probably could have released anything and it would have shot to number one this one did go to number one this one was released uh august 23rd 1963 in the UK uh, and was released, I think, a month or two later in America. And uh, this one went to number one pretty quickly. It was pretty huge. It is interesting. Like, so this all is all happening pre-internet, yep. pre-a lot of stuff. So when it released in the UK, I'm sure, though, like it released, it went to number one. There's no doubt that, like, record execs and people were talking to each other across the pond. Yeah. They're like, y'all get ready because this thing's going about to pop yeah. off, you know, yeah. British style. Absolutely. And and they would, they talk about the British invasion, of course, was this big musical thing at the time. I'm just looking through kind of the timeline of, of their, what they're going through. I mean, they would then go all across Europe and then finally to America the next year after the next, which we'll, we'll dive into next Next time we'll talk about I Want to Hold Your Hand, Can't Buy Me Love, and, and the next album. Um, we should also, we'll watch the movie Hard Day's Night, which is really, which I, I love. I think it's really fun. Okay. Um, and that has a lot of these, it has a companion album to it. So maybe that'll, that'll be the episode after next. Okay. We, we basically just covered, we'll say from 1957 when they started playing together to now the middle of 1963 where they're, just breaking as this huge thing. And this and this is kind of the theme that I kind of want to touch on again and again. Yeah. Which is it wasn't that they were in the right place at the right time or that they were massively talented. It was the fact that it was both of those things together. It was super zeitgeist. It was exactly the right thing at the right time for mm. many different countries, all coming to a head for a, a desire for, for a group like this and for kind of a cultural moment. Mm. But... These guys had this talent and experience and vision, and they were able to kind of leverage that as they went through this mm. at, in the end. Um, and of course, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Mm. And we're going to learn more about that on a later episode. Probably makes them the most interesting band of all time. Probably. For me, it does. For me, I think for a lot of people, I get the sense that for a lot of people, it's just too old. Mm. And once you had... 
Led Zeppelin and Nirvana and Radiohead and Depeche Mode and, and Rush. I, I didn't see Depeche Mode coming. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of something that wasn't metal. Yeah, right, exactly. It wasn't hard rock. <laughs> uh, yeah. F- Flock of Seagulls. All right, yeah, okay. Train. Train. Right? What, yeah. Train? Once, you, once you've had these, you know, all these different examples of music that are sure. clearly so far down the line, it, it is hard sometimes to go back. And that's how I feel with Love Me Do, hmm. where I'm like, you had to be there, I think, for that one to really say, oh, yeah, such a good song. Right. But I think from this point onward, I feel like I can listen to this stuff and feel, again, I grew up with it, so it's different for me maybe, but I feel like I can really relate to it and respond to it. Speaking of responding to it, what are your what are your takeaways now listening to these things and then kind of going through it and then looking forward, what are you thinking about? Is there anything that, like, is surprising you from this hour of talking about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, the, su- the primary surprise is that these guys really played it, like, really played it so well. The chemistry in the band is outstanding. It wasn't like there was nothing manufactured about what they did on the first album. It was legitimately, well, like the uh, philosopher Neil Fallon says, if you're going to do it, do it live on stage or don't, don't do, do it, it at all. all. And that's what they did. And they built they built their sound, their chemistry, probably a lot of their cues that they could just, you know, in the feel of playing as a band, they knew where each other were going because they did so much of it together. Yeah. Um, and another takeaway is that, like, you can't remove one member from this group and have it be the same. Like, yeah. everybody contributed to the sound and direction of the Beatles, even even though George Harrison wasn't technically writing as much and it was more John and Paul driving that forward, you can hear it in his guitar playing. You can hear everybody added something to yeah. to this group that made it come together the way it did. So those are my primary takeaways. Mm. Um, and also that they needed like a father figure. They were basically kids, right? Yeah. And they so were twenty they were 17. There's uh, an interesting footnote to the Hamburg thing. The Hamburg, the first stint in Hamburg ended because George got deported because he was too, he was 17. Wow. And playing in all these clubs and he was, he was supposed to be 18. Super interesting. Wow. <laughs> so like, that was one of the things that, <laughs> that was like a curveball they had to deal with at the beginning was he was like a year or two younger than the other guys. Hmm. At this point, he's like, I think 19. The other guys are like 21. Ringo, I think is 22. Man. Yeah, they're so young to be going through all this. For sure. And actually, one thing I didn't mention at the beginning of this, one thing I held in mind as I was listening to this recording, was I had once heard Ozzy Osbourne give an interview that he said that it was because of the Beatles that he started playing music, right, and hmm. doing music. How do you go from the Beatles to Black Sabbath, right? But that, to me, spoke of how influential this group was yeah. over so many people and uh, and so just listening to it with those ears, like this is what Ozzy was influenced by that led to Blizzard of Oz. Like it's hard to yeah. wrap your head around it, but that's that's how profoundly yeah. inspiring and influential this band was. And, and contextually, yeah. the sound must have been so fresh and so new to people that were first engaging with it. It was just hard to ignore and its reach continues to today that we're making a podcast about it. How about yeah, that? Yeah, how, how crazy is that to think that, like, this was, what is this, 59, 59 years ago. Mm. And we're talking about these guys who are, like, making their first singles 
and their first recordings and they're getting their first gigs and they have their manager and they're like, what's going to happen? And 60 years later, we'd be talking about that over here in America. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Pretty wild. Pretty wild. Well, to that point, if you listen today, definitely go listen to the full album, Please Please Me. Please Please Me. Um, we're an unofficial podcast about the Beatles, so we do want to encourage you to listen to their material, particularly that album. If you're enjoying the journey of this and want to hear the rest of their catalog, we'd love it if you took the journey with us and listened to the next album. We go ahead and talk about it next week. What's the name of that album, Joel? Next episode, we will be hitting With the Beatles, okay, which is the album they recorded later in 1963, and A Hard Day's Night, okay, which for me is the first, I would say this is a turn into... Their, their more productive and creative period. Okay. Um, we will also be, I recommend watching the movie A Hard Day's Night. Okay. Uh, for that as well, which includes a lot of, it's kind of a soundtrack movie, so a lot of the songs from that album are in that movie. So with the Beatles and A Hard Day's Night. If you can only listen to one, I listen to A Hard Day's Night. I think it's a little okay. more important than with the Beatles. All right. Well, we're going to listen to both of them and report back next week with my hot takes. Ian's hot takes. Thank you for listening, and we'll we will think of a of a nice catchy sign off next time. Sounds good. But for now, keep keep on keep on pleasing keep on. me, and I'll please you. So I will Joe with his podcast goodness. I can't think of anything better than that to say. So keep on pleasing me and we'll keep on pleasing you. Yeah. Uh, You take care. Bye.